Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? This week has been... Say good. Say it's been good. Say it's been great. What I do now is I try and ignore all my symptoms. So I could say, yes, it's been fantastic. Because, you know, when my heart's racing, I'm like, shut up, Noreen. You're fine. Just carry on. Yeah, because it's either that or give up, right? Yeah. And we, and we, we had a conversation the other day, didn't we, where I was really down about it. And I think that your attitude is possibly healthier mentally because we've got to keep going. We've got to keep positive. Yeah, I mean, everybody has to. Uh, I understand, like, you're almost twice as long into your long COVID session <laughs> as I am. <laughs> so I, I, I do understand the difference. But, you know, there's so much else going on. Like, both my kids have birthdays this week. I'm taking care of my elderly parents. I just, I can't sit around anymore and just keep worrying about every tiny twinge that I have. Fair enough. Because, you know, we're trying everything we can to get healthy we're seeking all the best medical help we're trying to get the people that we speak to to speak to all our listeners we're getting some good advice and some practical advice really just trying to give something back and i think you can't ask more of us than that just given that we're not well either i think you're doing a phenomenal job well so are you i mean emily how was your week love well, you saw me partway through it. It was really rubbish. And the um, days of feeling bad have been a lot. But I am now on my second day of getting out of bed without feeling like I drank two litres of vodka last night. Today, I feel good. Yesterday, I felt good. So I'm just going to take those two days as a, a small win. And fingers crossed tomorrow, I'll be good too. Fingers crossed. I'm sure you will be. Just stop drinking vodka. <laughs> Obviously, I have not been drinking vodka. This week, who we have on? Dr. Katie Munro, who uh, is a headache specialist at the National Migraine Centre in London. Migraine. <laughs> this, this week is going to really, um, you know, annoy people who say migraine or migraine because we repeat the word both ways <laughs> multiple times throughout the, throughout the interview. <laughs> It's an episode about migraine um, and Dr. Munro is, she was just so lovely to talk to, wasn't she? I would love to be able to go and see a doctor who listened to me the way that she sounds like she listens to her patients. I mean, that's why she has such a good podcast as well for her own specialty. But there is so much crossover between what you were saying about migraines and what we are saying generally about long COVID. Yeah, in the in the mechanisms and in the symptom fluctuations. Yeah. I, I think one of the most interesting things that she said would be about children, which I did not even have the foggiest clue about. The way that migraines manifest in kids is not in their heads. And I think for the children with long COVID or parents of kids with long COVID, this episode would really might open some doors for them. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly is a migraine and the difference between a migraine and a headache? 
The first thing to say is I talk about migraine rather than a migraine uh, because migraine is a primary headache disorder. It's a genetic neurological condition and the genes for migraine give you the vulnerability to have the symptoms of migraine and the symptoms include headaches. So headache is a symptom, migraine is a diagnosis. And that's quite an important distinction. So when I'm talking to people about uh, what's happening to them in their episodes of illness, I try and say to them, let's talk about migraine attacks rather than migraine, because migraine is the disorder that you're suffering from in the same way that we would talk about asthma and asthma attacks. So if you just have a headache... Yes, you're going to say that awful (laughs) phrase, just a normal headache. So now I'm going to bang my soapbox about that phrase. So there is no such thing as just a normal headache. A headache is a symptom of something. You wouldn't say to me, if you had the normal rashes that everybody gets, because people know that rashes are not normal and not everybody gets headaches. Some people never get headaches. Um, So just the normal headaches is the wrong sort of term. What you need to be saying is, why am I getting these headaches? What is the underlying reason? And usually, usually that is that you also have migraine disorder, but it might be that you've got a headache because you've Um, had a head injury or you've had an infection or you may have something more serious going on. So there's a number of different conditions that can cause headaches. And some people with migraine only get them very occasionally and get them quite mildly. So there's another myth, which is that migraine attacks have to be really, really severe. They have to put you in bed for three days. Otherwise, it doesn't count as a migraine headache. And I would say that's wrong. So this is why many people in the population have headaches they think are just the normal headaches, but actually what they're getting is migraine attacks and they just haven't had that diagnosis. It's really, really common. One in seven people get it. Can you explain to us how you would diagnose migraine? Mainly it's on the history. It's what people are telling me. So basically, if somebody comes to my clinic and says, I'm getting uh, recurrent episodes of headache and I get sensitive to light, sound, movement or smells or touch and I sometimes get nausea or vomiting and it stops me doing what I want to do or it reduces my ability to do that and I'm getting them but in between I'm absolutely fine. That is very, very likely to be migraine. Um, But not everybody with migraine gets headache. Some people get migraine attacks which are dizziness And some children get migraine attacks, which are mainly abdominal pain. So I think we need to be careful not to confuse a migraine attack with a headache. Uh, But headache is a common symptom that people do get with migraine attacks. So have you seen a big uptick in migraine referrals to the National Migraine Centre since long COVID or since COVID, uh, but since long COVID became a phenomenon? Yes, we absolutely have. We have been inundated. People can self-refer to us. They don't need to go via their GP. They can just fill in the booking form on our website or pick up the phone and leave a message on our info line. Um, And we have seen a massive increase in the number of people asking for appointments. And there's a number of reasons for that, I think. Uh, We know from some studies that people with migraine have found that the pandemic, for lots of different reasons, has increased the frequency of their migraine attacks. 
Uh, of course, it's also decreased the availability of neurology appointments. Uh, many neurologists were uh, co-opted onto COVID wards at the beginning, and lots and lots of outpatient appointments were cancelled. Uh, there's also been um, some new treatments coming through, which were approved on the NHS last year, and people have begun to know about those. And so they've come to ask the question, how do I get those? Would that be suitable for me? And uh, and I think generally people know more about us at the National Migraine Centre because one of our missions is to raise awareness about migraine and educate people. And we do that via our own podcast, which is called Heads Up Podcasts. Which is brilliant. Oh, thank you. And to be clear, self-referral to the National Migraine Centre is via the NHS. It's no, not- no, no, no. So the... National Migraine Centre was set up about 40 years ago as a charity. Okay. We're not linked to the NHS at all. We don't charge a fee at the moment other than for the expensive treatments like Botox and the anti-CGRP drugs. We have to charge for those. And we ask for a donation from patients who come. The whole idea of the charity was to make good quality advice and treatment available to anybody who gets migraine attacks. And I think we really are trying to hold on to that, but it's been a very hard year uh, for the charity, uh, for most charities, because donations and fundraising uh, have been really impacted by the pandemic. And the numbers are going up. Yes, we've got uh, a lovely cohort of new doctors who are training up at the moment because we really, really want to reduce our waiting list and get to see people quickly. Um, we also, most of our doctors are GPs with a special interest and they've had extra training uh, and they can really get into very expert levels of training about migraine and other headache disorders. Um, but of course, some of them are working also in the NHS as GPs and GPs are inundated um, at the moment and, and really working very, very hard trying to cope. They've had a huge amount of increase in uh, patient contacts and also a reduction in GP numbers. So, yeah, it's been hard. So how do you get the medicine? Is it via prescription or do you refer back to the GP if you are not part of the NHS? So what we firstly do is we spend a lot of time talking about lifestyle supplements, things that people can do themselves to try and manage their migraine better. Uh, Often it's about knowing how to use the medications they've already been given, but may not have been given accurate information about the best way to use them. So I often find that people have been told, oh, um, you can have this triptan, but it's really, really strong. You shouldn't take it unless you're really, really unwell. And that is really the wrong advice. So the best time to treat your migraine attack is when it starts, as soon as you can, because it's a bit like a snowball. It gathers momentum, gets bigger and bigger. And if you delay treating it, then you're very likely to not manage to get rid of it. And there's so much education that is can be really, really helpful. But if they need a further prescription, we can do private prescriptions and then people would have to pay for those. Or we can ask their GP and we send a really long and explanatory report to GPs. I, I hope GPs have time to read it. We try and put the bullet points at the top um, and say to GPs, please, could you prescribe X, Y, or Z. And normally GPs are very, very happy to do that and they're helpful and supportive. So there are certain treatments which aren't available through GPs, and that would be things like Botox injections or the new anti-CGRP drugs. Um, And those are available on the NHS, and we can do those in our clinic. 
but they there may be very long waiting lists for the neurology clinics and there are very few headache specialist clinics sadly there should be more because with such a common condition uh, we really need more headache specialists in both primary care and secondary care I think affecting one in seven people Absolutely. Before we get too deep into the treatment, can you set out for us, because I think there are a lot of similarities uh, between the migraine process and the long COVID process. Now, I don't necessarily know that I can discern my symptoms between being one and the other because they're so so interlinked and, and they sort of roller coaster at the same time. Can you explain for our listeners that process of migraine, when it actually starts, because it doesn't start with the head piercing pain that's not the beginning of the migraine so can you take it back to the point at which that migraine is already in process so if you think of uh, the genes giving your brain the vulnerability to have attacks what the genes do is they mean that your brain is always going to be more sensitive to change and I say to patients this is a change in your internal environment or your external environment And changing things, adding together, start to irritate the brain and push it towards the threshold of having a migraine attack. So it might be changing blood sugar, changing sleep patterns. Hormones is a huge one. It might be changing weather conditions. And we know that uh, falling barometric pressure can often trigger migraine. And it's usually a combination of those changes irritating the brain. And those changes can be occurring up to 48 hours before you know anything about the attack. Some people do get prodromal symptoms like yawning or intense fatigue or irritability. (laughs) And some Mm -hmm. people uh, tell me it's my spouse that knows when I'm getting a (laughs) migraine attack. Uh, And they say, oh, you're a bit crabby today. Maybe uh, watch out, take your medication. Um, But uh, so that kind of one or two days build up is the prodromal phase and then we have the uh, in 25 percent of people we have the aura phase which just lasts an hour Uh, so not everybody gets that by any means and that is where the neurochemicals trigger electrical changes in the cells of the brain in aura that causes visual disturbances very often like zigzags or flashing lights But if you don't get aura, then that's when the headache starts, assuming you're having headache as one of your major symptoms. I talk sometimes about the most bothersome symptom because sometimes people say to me, well, I get headache, but actually I get really dizzy and that bothers me more than the headache. So it's important that we don't get fixated about headaches. But that impact stage then can roll on for about three days often rolls on for three days that's all them one migraine attack and then after that's finished there's this period which is sometimes called the hangover phase or the postromal phase so it's a complex process and it's all down to the build-up of those neurochemicals causing electrical disturbances that roll out over the surface of the brain okay how long would you say the process can be from from start to finish So in children, it's often shorter. In children, they often have much shorter migraine attacks uh, that may last only a number of hours and resolve quite quickly. But in adults, it can be anything between a day and five days. 
I would say. And of course, if you're getting migraine attacks quite frequently, by the time one is settling down, the other one may be starting to roll. And when this is happening very frequently, people are getting more than 15 days impacted by migraine in a month, then we would say that's chronic migraine. Uh, But if you say to me, well, I just get one um, maybe once a month or sometimes even less than that, that's called episodic migraine. I will get maybe two smaller headaches and then a a gap of maybe two days and then I will get the huge migraine where I can't get out of bed and do anything and then I get the massive hangover after it. Those smaller blips, are they migraines in themselves? Because I thought that they they were kind of preludes to the, the bigger event. I think they probably are. And I think sometimes what happens with people is they uh, they feel the headache starting, they take some medication, and it suppresses the process enough to make the headache go away. But the migraineous process in the background is still going. And so they say to me, well, I took it, it went away, but it came back the next day. Or we see a pattern if we're looking at diaries, where on the Monday, they had the, the migraine attack starting, they got rid of it, Tuesday was fine, but then they got it back again on Wednesday. And I think it's just that their threshold is relatively low. And that impact of the symptoms can come and go a little bit, but it's all part of the same uh, process, really. Okay. In between attacks, if you're having really true episodic migraine, uh, people should be absolutely completely fine in between attacks. So if you're not, I say to people, I don't just want to know about the bad ones. I want to know about any level of symptoms that you're having. So if you're keeping a diary of your migraine, think about writing down every day, the impact out of 10. So some days, yes, it might be an eight, nine or 10, but some days it might be a one or a two where you're just a bit brain foggy or you're a bit tired or you've got a little bit of a headache, but you can push on through. I want to know about those as well, because that means you've got quite a low threshold for going into another migraine attack. But if you say to me, well, 25 days of the month, I have a crystal clear head, I have no symptoms at all, then you're very much into episodic migraine. And and there's a slightly difference in how we manage those in terms of the preventative options. Have you noticed anything uh, particular about the long COVID patients that are coming through your clinic? So knowing that I was going to speak to the two of you, I did a little uh, search about what sort of studies have been out there. And I was really interested to read some case studies from Barcelona, where there's a really good headache specialist team. And they describe uh, some different presentations of people who've had COVID infection. So one of the patients they described had previous migraine, got COVID, and then fairly quickly changed from episodic to chronic migraine. So it really did affect her migraine attacks and make her have more trouble with them. And they had to end up treating her with Botox injections. And they did manage to reduce the impact quite considerably, but not back to previous levels. So that was one. The other two patients they described were people who'd never had headaches at all. One of them got a headache as part of the COVID infection, and it is a common symptom. It's about the fifth most common symptom when you get COVID. Sometimes it can be a prodromal symptom that shows that you're uh, becoming positive for COVID, but sometimes it occurs during the active infection. 
And that's what happened to the second patient. And she then went on to develop a quite troublesome headache, having never had those before. And then the third one was a man who had COVID infection, didn't particularly have much headache until about two months later. And then he developed a daily persistent headache. So I think when we're talking about headaches and long COVID, we need to understand what the potential mechanisms can be, and those can be variable. So I think it can be a worsening of pre-existing headache condition, or they hypothesized that it may be that there is infection of the nerve cells uh, with the COVID virus, and that that activates the system, which is the trigeminovascular system, which is that system in the brain that we know is implicated in migraine. And although people haven't had migraine before, they've now got migraineous type symptoms because those areas have been infected with the virus. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated thing, I think. Um, and most of the treatment will be the same kind of treatment that we use for chronic migraine because the underlying goal is the same to try and settle the brain down and reduce the threshold for getting pain and the other symptoms that go with that. That's interesting. All of the triggers that you mentioned for migraine are basically the same triggers that we have been told to avoid for triggering long COVID relapses. But also several of the mechanisms behind migraine, the, the, the one that you've just mentioned and, and others in, in your book, are also in line with long COVID. What you were just saying, one of the triggers is uh, the energy metabolism in, in cells sort of is that is that mitochondrial that's right yes so can you talk us to, to us a little more about that in migraine because it's also one of the theories behind long covid so there's some evidence that people with migraine have uh, some sort of uh, deficiency in the energy production within cells and uh, some of the supplements that we give patients who uh, may find these helpful for migraine prevention uh, are very much trying to replace things intracellularly that people have found to be deficient when they've been doing studies. So that would be magnesium, riboflavin or vitamin B2 and coenzyme Q10. And all of those have quite good evidence that uh, they can be useful in some people with migraine. I always say that in some people because not anything works for everybody. And I think, you know, we're trying to find out more about long COVID and why it causes these things. And there is a big overlap between long COVID and patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And also in our clinic, we are aware of a lot of patients who have migraine attacks who also have problems with histamine and mast cell <laughs> activation syndrome. And I think it's a fascinating area. I'm, I'm hoping to do a podcast episode fairly soon uh, with the Marcel activation, um, Marcel action people. And, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, because we do feel that histamine is implicated in some people with migraine attacks. And I'm hearing that there's a lot of uh, similarities between Marcel activation syndrome and long COVID. And so... Uh, fragility of the mast cells, which are um, defenders of our body in all sorts of surfaces around the body. So they may be in skin, in um, lungs, in gut, 
uh, and in uh, the nervous system. And if those have become more fragile and we don't fully understand this whole process yet, uh, then that can cause an aggravation of migraine headaches as well as some of these other symptoms. You do talk a lot about food as being a trigger for migraine. So I guess that that kind of histamine response is, is food driven in migraine. Yes, it can be. Um, although sometimes people try excluding histamine from their diet completely. That's actually really hard to do. And it doesn't make a difference for everybody. But what we find in our clinic is that not only are we asking more specific questions about do you get asthma, do you get acid, in your gut? Do you get sudden bouts of diarrhea? Do you get rashes? Sometimes I get people to draw with their fingernail on their forearm very lightly, don't damage yourselves. And if they are getting a really red flare line uh, over a a minute or two um, after you've done that, if just firmly press with your fingernail on your inside of your forearm, and I usually do it at the same time, just to prove to myself that I don't get that. (laughs) Um, But it's surprising how many of my patients on Zoom will go, oh, actually, I've got a really big red line. And that is histamine release in the forearm. And it can be, it's a thing called dermatographia. Is that the same for brown people? Because I don't (laughs) get a red line. I think it can be, yes. You would see a reaction because it's a bit like a nettle rash. Right. Um, Yeah, I've got a red line. Yeah, you see. I've got a big red line. Yeah. I haven't. Well, we know you're terrible with your skin. Having done it at the same time, I have no. I have no. So you've probably got an element of histamine uh, as part of your symptoms. We also find that's linked with uh, hypermobility. And so we're asking specifically about hypermobility. Do you think that you're flexible? Were you able to do the splits when you were younger? Can you push your thumb down onto your forearm? Those kind of things. Have you got very bendy elbows or is your neck very kind of loose? And you uh, sometimes people have had dislocations. And the other condition this is linked with is POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Oh one big linked up thing so many so many links and you start to join the dots and you think I actually need I need a lot longer with this patient once you've had uh, patients saying yes I get this this and this uh, then we need a much longer time to discuss all the implications of that so you're saying that the POTS is linked to the mast cell activation and the histamine driven things is POTS part of the migranous process in any way I think the whole thing, there's an overlap. And uh, I think we have to think of all of these things as a spectrum. So there will be some people with migraine that have it mildly, some people that have it moderately, some people that have it really badly. And it's the same with hypermobility and with POTS and with mast cell issues. Some people get mild effects from these things and other people have everything. And I have some patients who have chronic migraine who have severe uh, um POTS and bad mast cell issues and are diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and it's all overlapping and all linked. But they often have to go to lots of different specialists for each of those individual things that they're suffering from, which is a real shame and it's a real area where I think we could improve our team working um, in healthcare systems. You know, if we 
we need to have an overview when when the whole body is affected by something. It's the same with low, long COVID. You know, if, if the whole body is affected by something and you only go to a dermatologist or you only go to a cardiologist or you only go to a neurologist or a rheumatologist, then you're having to run around all over the place to get good help. Yeah, it's that holistic overview that basically everyone's asking for in terms of the multidisciplinary teams for the long COVID clinics that aren't necessarily being uh, followed yet. So as I suffer from long COVID, does that mean I can, will I suddenly become hypermobile? Will I no. get hypermobile? <laughs> no. I would love to be able to do the splits, honestly. <laughs> oh, I wish that was the case. No, the hypermobility is genetic. So if you're not born with the genes of uh, hypermobility, then you don't get them later in your life. <laughs> and it's very much connected to um, IBS and leaky gut syndrome and things, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that's the other thing that I am constantly uh, talking to people about is the importance of diet and the importance of gut health and the microbiome. and and that can be nurtured uh, by simple things, by not having too much of the high GI foods, so the sugary foods, the carbs, uh, white things. <laughs> so white things like white flour, white sugar, white processed bread, pasta, etc. cetera. Um, an exception is cauliflower. Feel free to eat lots of cauliflower. <laughs> Um, so a low GI diet is what we'd recommend. And I've been recommending that for my patients when I was an NHS GP uh, who had fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue. So it seems as if a processing of carbohydrates uh, can be quite difficult in people with these kind of chronic conditions. So having slightly more protein and fat in the diet gives them more slow release energy and seems to suit people better. Uh, and that certainly applies to people with migraine. Um, and the other thing is to have a wide range of plant-based foods. So as a rule of thumb, try and have 30 different plant-based foods in your diet every week. Basically, a meat and two veg diet is not going to be rich enough in plant-based things. We know that plant-based diets are, are very healthful, um, but that doesn't mean you have to just eat lots of traditional veg. You can count garlic, chili, um, herbs, all of those things count as plant-based foods. So it's just and the pulses and legumes that absolutely I think people don't necessarily yeah pulses legumes. See, this is the problem: is trying to marry any of these various things. And because in your book, I was reading possibly low histamine, and then it, you say low GI is possibly the one that you've had the best yes. uh, results with. There has been a lot of criticism in the press of the low histamine diet for long COVID. One of the things with it is that I think I basically ended up being slightly malnourished because yeah. I was trying to cut out these things that you must not eat this, you must not eat that. The way that you frame the low GI diet, it's a little more flexible. It can enable people to not stop eating. I don't think there's very strong evidence that doing a strict low histamine diet is useful for most people with migraine, but it may be something that people want to try. I think it's very much about finding what works for you. And I think also if it's a diet which is really hard to follow, then it's probably not going to be something you're going to be able to sustain anyway. I say to people, look, you know, you have to live with this condition, be it 
um, migraine or long COVID or chronic fatigue, whatever. So you need to make it something that you can practically do that does seem to help you, but you can continue doing it. And I think with any dietary change, you also need to be aware that you're going to have to probably do it for at least a month, if not two. And if at the end of that time, it hasn't really made much difference, then I probably wouldn't bother anymore, to be quite honest. That's really sound advice. Some of the time, when, especially when I'm in a meagerness bit, I am so nauseous that the only thing I can eat is dry white flatbread. And that's not allowed in any yeah. of these diets. It's also yeah. got no nutritional value, but at least it puts something in my stomach. So my, uh, my tip for you would be, why haven't you got a good anti-nausea treatment? Because I so often hear people saying, oh, I get these migraine attacks and I'm really, really nauseated. Well, have you had something from your GP to help with the nausea? No? No. Well, why not? Why not? It's a basic thing. Look in the guidelines for treating migraine attacks. An anti-emetic, anti-nausea tablet is right up there because we know that the migraine attack affects the vagus nerve that goes wandering down to your stomach and stops your stomach emptying. And if your stomach isn't emptying efficiently, two things happen. One is people feel nauseated or possibly vomit. Some people are really sensitive to that. And the other is if they take painkillers for their migraine, um, they don't go in, they're not absorbed in the stomach. So they don't go in very quickly. And so the migraine attack may have rolled and gathered momentum and been much harder. And and people say, well, those tablets didn't work. Well, it didn't work because they weren't absorbed because they were stuck in your stomach. So an anti-nausea treatment is really a key part for some people of getting effective management of their migraine attacks and there there are some other tips like ginger some people find ginger really really helpful i was just drinking ginger in hot water yesterday because it really does help yeah acupressure bands can be helpful for some people i had a child a child who was uh, getting travel sickness travel sickness is linked with migraine so a lot of kids who get travel sickness. That is so interesting. <laughs> I always had travel sickness as a child and I've been prone to migraine as an adult. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I had so. no idea until today that they were linked. Strongly linked. Uh, and she had acupressure bands just for the journey to school and that made a big difference to her travel sickness. So, yeah. Talk to us a little about the abdominal migraine that you mentioned in children. It's actually something that I saw someone posting about today because oh. we know that a lot of children with long COVID have GI symptoms yeah. rather than necessarily some of the other symptoms that adults are getting. So abdominal migraine is a quite a common feature of migraine in children and they may not get headache. And so uh, if you have a child who is getting recurrent bouts of abdominal pain um, and sometimes they look rather pale, it can be quite severe, the pain. They may want to go and lie down. They might become a little light sensitive or smell sensitive. So they're like, oh, I don't like the smell of the cooking or whatever. And if they're getting that and especially especially if there's a family history of migraines, their mum or dad or grandparents uh, have got migraine attacks, then um, I would have a high level of suspicion that they are getting migraine. And many, many children with migraine don't have a diagnosis. About 50% of children never get a diagnosis until they grow into adulthood and start getting more typical headaches. It often changes in teenage and they begin to get more teenagers as a peak time of getting migraine developing because of all the changes. If you think of the changes a teenager's going through, first of all, they're changing to secondary school. They're changing their 
they may be growing, they may be having uh, the changes of puberty, um, menstrual cycle starts, their need for sleep changes. And teenagers, we know, need longer periods of sleep for their brain development. But we don't, as a society, let them have a lie-in every day. We say, no, no, you've got to get up at 7.30 and rush off to school. So they then have erratic sleep because they catch up with sleep on the weekend. And we know that changes in sleep pattern is a big trigger for migraine. And then they may have stresses of exams, learning, schools, relationships with friends, romances, alcohol may come into the picture, um, you know, lots of things for teenagers. So we see a peak instance of migraine around 14 and 15. Boys and girls get it the same amount before that age. After that, because of the menstrual cycle, girls tend to get it more frequently than boys. How is it treated in children? Uh, So it can be treated as if it is a headache migraine in just the same way. Simple anti-nausea treatments, simple painkillers often work quite well for children, uh, getting them to eat something in case they've had a long gap in between meals because sometimes they've had their dinner at five o'clock in the evening and then they haven't eaten anything till quite late the following morning. So trying to correct those routine things to prevent them getting attacks can be really important Um, and putting in a bedtime snack or making the sleep routine a little bit more routine uh, and regular regular, uh, can be helpful. And then the triptans that we use for migraine headaches work for abdominal migraine in children as well. And they're licensed for children as well. They're not licensed for children, but they're widely used globally. So uh, a lot of headache specialists uh, are using pretty much all of them. Um, Sumatriptan is the, the most commonly used, but Zolmatriptan is a good second option. I use that one quite a lot in the, in young people. Yeah, works well. But there are seven different triptans. And that's something that a lot of adults don't know. I have patients coming and saying, well, I tried one triptan, it didn't help. I'm like, well, there are six others you could try. One of them may suit you very well. So do they all behave differently? They're slightly different. And everybody's different in their pharmacogenetic processing of drugs. So it's a question of working through. And we find this with people with mast cell issues as well. Somebody may be suited very well by one type of antihistamine. uh, And another person will say, well, it didn't work for me, or I felt sensitive to it. So try a different one. Keep trying looking at the Hmm. different options. That's interesting. We will put on H1 and H2 blockers. Uh The availability of the H2 blockers has been really tricky lately because uh, we used to use ranitidine and then that got withdrawn globally and cimetidine. So now the only one that I'm managing patients to get is the famotidine. Yeah. Um, But H1 blockers, there's quite a number of those that are available. And then there are other things like Montelukast, uh, which can be a histamine blocker that some people have been put on. I was put on that for my asthma. Yeah, yeah. Long time ago. Yeah, so it can be really helpful if histamine is part of the issue for your respiratory symptoms. Montelukast 10 milligrams at night can be quite useful. So interesting, these overlaps, though, the overlaps between the potential for long COVID and asthma or allergies and pre-existing conditions then you put the migraine in it looks like it looks like we're looking at the same mechanism behind these things or i think it's it's a little bit more complicated if only we could find the one key to these things it would be so much simpler wouldn't it yeah uh, and but i think because it is a complex interaction uh, of all sorts and the, and the expression of things in different people is very variable as well um I think it's it's really about just knowing that there are options and keep looking for the right recipe for you. 
one question on that because the the diet recommendation of try it for a month with your patients with migraine how long do you give any say you give them a certain trip down how long would you allow that to work before potentially changing it or deciding that it is not working? So if I'm giving them an acute treatment recipe, then I would say to them, try this for at least three attacks. So that's for episodic migraine. So give it give it three goes um, and see how you get on with it. If I'm talking about preventative medications, then it's important to get to the maximum tolerated dose and keep on that maximum tolerated dose for at least three months. And the same goes for the supplements. So the magnesium, the B2, and the coenzyme Q10, you need to get to a good dose and stay on it for at least three months because it doesn't seem to help quieten the brain down. So what's a good dose? So a good dose varies. There there are guidelines for target doses for all of the different medications to prevent migraine. But some people get benefit at lower doses and some people get side effects at lower doses. So I say to people, start low, increase slowly. When you start, if you start to get side effects, go back one step. Don't just go, oh, it doesn't work. I'll abandon the whole thing. Creep gently up, creep back down one step. And that's your maximum tolerated dose for whichever thing you're taking. So often I'll have patients who say, oh, I was given amitriptyline 10 milligrams. I took it for a fortnight and it didn't work. So that's uh, not the high enough dose and not for long enough. So I say to them, go back, try again. Often side effects will settle. If you have side effects in the first couple of weeks, they often do settle with those kind of medications. Uh, And if you can push on through that first fortnight, uh, you may well find that you do get some benefit gradually as the dose increases and as the length of time increases. But you have to be patient, I think. But uh, the other thing is with the amitriptyline, with the, uh, did you say it's nortriptyline, you can't just stop taking them. Do you have to wean yourself back off them as well? Or is it fine to just stop? If you think of your brain being sensitive to change, your brain likes gentle changes, not sudden changes. So we would never go from a high dose down to zero rapidly. So if you're weaning down, go gently down as well. You mentioned that there were some new treatments for migraine. And could you also just detail the use of Botox? Because it's not actually, you know, put in here to make your forehead nice. It's, it's, it is put in where you just showed. Yes. Yeah, so it so is I on your have forehead. Both the wrinkle free yes. forehead. Yes. And no migraine. You could. Fascinating. Um, so, the, so Botox has been around for years. And the way that it was discovered was that people who were having cosmetic Botox, uh, often women, said, oh, my migraine's a lot better. My migraine attacks are much less frequent. So somebody then looked into it. Professor Blumenthal in the States did a lot of research on it and worked out a protocol for the best doses and the best places to put Botox injections for people with migraine. So that's the protocol that we use called the preempt protocol. And you will find that there are some clinics that say, oh, I'll do you a little bit of Botox and that'll help your migraines. It needs to be the preempt protocol, and that's 31 injections. Uh, so some in the forehead, some in the temples, some in the back of the head, and some in each shoulder. Does it alter? Because I, I wouldn't want something that makes my face frozen. 
personal preference. So it is affecting the motor nerves as well as the sensory nerves. But the effect that we're looking for is the dulling down of the sensory input to the brain, which seems to be what irritates the brain and causes migraine attacks. But yes, people do get a frozen forehead with it. The effects tend to build up over a number of sets. And But I have certainly had people who've had Botox maybe over a year or 18 months, and then their migraine is so much better that they've managed to stop having it and they have a break from it. So, yeah, it's not a life sentence. No preventers for migraine are a life sentence. I I think people sometimes get stuck on things. I had a friend who was taking amitriptyline for 15 years, and she said to me, oh, I never get migraines now because I'm on the amitriptyline. I'm like, how long have you not got them? And she said, oh, about 14 years. And I was like, (laughs) 14 years, you didn't need to take it. (laughs) So so she wound down, came off it, never got any more migraine because her migraine was settled. Uh, You know, sometimes it can recur, but um, if you've settled the brain down, you can often have a break from these preventers. Uh, They're not a life sentence. That's really, really good to know. So you asked about the new uh, medications. So the new medications work on calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is abbreviated to CGRP. And that is a neurochemical, one of many different neurochemicals which are implicated in causing migraine attacks. And there have been a lot of studies showing that if you give people CGRP, they get a migraine attack. So that led people to say, right, what can we do to block that neurochemical? And that led to the development of the anti-CGRP injections. And there are three currently available in the United Kingdom, and they are theoretically now available on the NHS for people with chronic migraine. And two of them have been approved for people with episodic migraine. Um, But but there's a big but. Mm. Um, the availability is very patchy. The other thing we haven't mentioned, and I will just mention here because these are very exciting developments for migraine, uh, is neuromodulation devices. So neuromodulation devices are uh, there are various different ones. Uh, the one that we uh, are quite commonly uh, recommending or, or hearing that patients have had benefit from for their migraine attacks is called a cephaly dual, uh, spelled C-E-F-A-L-Y. And you stick it on your forehead and it gives an electrical impulse to distract the nerves that go over each eyebrow. Uh, and we know that they send in signals to the brain and, and can cause irritation. So you can use that one either for 20 minutes a day as a preventer, or you can use it for an hour if you have a migraine attack coming on. And some people find that really, really helpful. It's it's not a miracle cure. There's, we don't use the word cure in migraine because you've got the genes. There's nothing we can do to suck those out of you. But, um, but to get something which is non-medication, which can be helpful, I think a lot of people like that. And I've got uh, teenagers right through to people in their 70s who have found benefit from that neuromodulation device. Definitely something I'd try uh, ahead of Botox. Tell us about hormone fluctuations and the role that they play in uh, in the migraine. Hormones are a big factor in migraine. So we see peak incidences of migraine in puberty. Uh, the migraine can change in pregnancy and also we see a lot of women who say I get a worse more severe attacks around my menstrual period and then 
coming into the perimenopause, a lot of women either uh, get worsening migraine in the perimenopause or they start getting migraine attacks where they've not had them before. We know that it's falling levels of estrogen that irritate the brain of women who have migraine without aura. And it's high levels of estrogen that can contribute to people who have migraine with aura. So if you are somebody who has migraine without aura, it may well be at the end of the month, your estrogen level falls just before your period. And that's when you get your migraine attack. Now, it doesn't happen in everybody, uh, but it can be one of the factors. So it's quite useful when you're keeping a headache diary to mark down when your period is and just see whether that's a factor for you. So that's what we call menstrually related migraine. If you're getting period related migraine attacks, but also getting them at other times of month, occasionally when other things are triggering them. And then people who get pregnant, who have migraine without aura, often find that their migraine goes away because they've got stable estrogen levels throughout the pregnancy. But unfortunately, what happens is when you have the baby, uh, if you breastfeed, that often continues that uh, um, beneficial um, protective effect. But when you stop breastfeeding or when your periods are starting to return, then your migraine may come back again. So that's a bit of a nuisance. Um, and if people have migraine with aura and they get pregnant, sometimes the higher level of estrogen can make them have more aura. There are lots of things that you can do to prevent migraine during pregnancy. And then the perimenopause peak, peak time. I've been hearing an awful lot about the perimenopause lately. And I think that's really, really good. I think there's been just a general awareness of the impact of all sorts of symptoms on women as they start to have hormonal changes, even before they stop having periods. Um, but one of the things that they say is, what is a symptom of the perimenopause? Migraine. Now, migraine is not a symptom. It's a genetic neurological disorder. So if you have the genes and you then go into the perimenopause, that may reveal that you have migraine by having more frequent headaches. So I don't think migraine is a symptom of anything. It's a primary headache disorder, but revealing that you have migraine by having more frequent headaches is common in the perimenopause because Hormones, estrogen in particular, goes up and down like a flipping yo-yo in the perimenopause unpredictably. And so it can go crashing down and then come zooming up again because your ovaries don't just gradually decline in a linear fashion. Um, so the overarching uh, advice for all of these hormonal fluctuations is find a way of smoothing out estrogen fluctuations, that there are various different ways of doing that uh, with additional hormones or coils or topical estrogen. Um, and again, you know, lots of different options that people can explore. HRT can be really, really helpful for smoothing out estrogen fluctuations in the perimenopause, but it, the most safest sort is transdermal estrogen via a patch because that gives you a lovely smooth blood level. Whereas if you take tablet estrogen, you get a peak and a trough and a peak and a trough. It's so fascinating that literally all of the treatments, apart from the Botox, um, are also being used in long COVID. I mean, yeah. I guess part of that is that a lot of the way that we're treating long COVID is we are treating the sort of underlying mechanisms or something that we know something about. So we're treating the big red or treating the pots. 
Yeah. But I do find it fascinating that yeah. we're using the same drugs. Yeah, I think so. I think if you think about it as a as, as all of these things as a disorder of our homeostatic mechanisms, of the mechanisms that keep our bodies in balance uh, and keeping healthy, uh, again, you know, changes, anything that causes a lot of change and puts our those mechanisms out of balance, uh, anything we can do to redress that and make things more even, smooth. And even things like meditation, chai chi, um, you know, those kind of things, we know those do affect the brain. They do have definite impact on uh, the functioning of the brain, and people have shown this with functional MRIs. So again, looking into those kind of things, or acupuncture, we don't quite know why, but there's a lot of evidence that acupuncture can be really helpful for preventing migraine in some people. <laughs> I was adding that in some people, not in everybody. And you need to uh, explore all of the different ways that you may find benefit. Um, uh, to, 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 uh, and it also gives you some hope, I think, you know, that uh, I sometimes have people coming in and saying, I've tried everything. And invariably, they haven't. <laughs> There's always something else. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a fascinating. The brain is fascinating, basically, isn't it? The body really is, is fascinating, too. Really, it's fascinating. Yeah. Mm. And we don't really become fascinated with it until it starts to go wrong. Right? Yes. <laughs> you keep saying that you are um, you have the genetics to have migraine. Is it possible to identify that gene? It isn't one gene. They've, so far, they have identified at least 40 different genes right. uh, that interact. And I think that is why people with migraine are so individual. If it was one gene, that would be a lot easier, but it's a lot of different genes. And the expression of the genes, and this goes for everything, if you've got genes for any kind of characteristic, the expression of that gene or those genes is affected by a, a thing called epigenetics, which is the interaction of the environment and our behavior. Uh, so you may have the genes, but never have a migraine attack in your life, which is why some people say, well, nobody in my family's got it. And it may be that the genes just have never been uh, expressed in that person. Uh, or you may have the genes and, and you get migraine t attacks a lot and your sibling also has the genes, but hardly ever gets a migraine. And that's because of the, the whole environmental uh, impact from internal changes and external changes it's all the variables coming together yeah no this has been fascinating i think my son i you described my son to me with your abdominal migraines ah. that children thing is absolutely fascinating because the gi impacts are we've spoken to to people who have children with long covid and the gi impacts i don't necessarily think that people are putting two and two together um that that it is the same sort of mechanism as the migraine that's triggering the GI issues in long COVID kids? The gut is said to be the second brain. So, you know, I think gut-brain link is really important. The gut makes a lot of neurochemicals like serotonin and things like that. And we know there's a direct connection between the gut and the brain. So, again, a, a fascinating um, area for more research and the yeah. importance of having a good gut microbiome for not just for your brain health also for mood so we know that people with depression anxiety if they can improve their diet their mood tends to improve and also the immunity immune system 
key, key area is the gut health. We asked Dr. Man Ray to give us some uh, dosage advice on all the supplements that they recommend for migraine because a lot of them are the same ones that we're all being recommended for long COVID. And Noreen, so many people we've spoken to, we've asked, how much of this shall we take? And no one's given us dosages. Yeah, no, exactly. So you go to the doctor and they say, try magnesium, it'll help you relax at night. Yeah, it turns out we've there's been taking... Types, there's three different types of magnesium and what dosage do you take? And they were like, well, no, just go and get some magnesium, okay. But actually there are specifics to it. And Dr. Manre was kind enough to uh, give us the, the specifics. And we will put that out as a supplement to this episode. A supplement supplement. <laughs> a supplement supplement. <laughs> Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.